Hello and welcome to Life Perspectives, the intergenerational podcast from Cumberland Lodge. Episodes will be presented by Cumberland Lodge Fellows, past and present, and shared during 2022 to mark the 75th anniversary of the Cumberland Lodge charity. This episode looks at people with autism and their experiences of religious practices, bringing together Henna Cundill and Dame Stephanie Shirley. Henna is a PhD researcher at the University of Aberdeen, exploring the relationship between autistic people and religion, and Dame Stephanie is a businesswoman and philanthropist who has funded a significant amount of research into the field of autism. I now hand you over to Henna and Dame Stephanie. Well, thank you so much, Dame Stephanie, for joining me today and being willing to record this podcast with me. If it's okay with you, I will start with a, a little set of quickfire questions that Cumberland Lodge kind of have given all of us to begin our conversations with in these uh, Life Perspectives podcasts. And the first one is, what were you doing at my age? Um, and for the sake of those listening, I will mention that I'm 37. Right. For the sake of those listening, I will mention that I'm 88. Um, when I was 37, I was struggling to bring up my uh, profoundly autistic son, Giles, uh, I was heading a medium-sized service company that I'd set up for women of women. Uh, and I was starting to think about um, unusual things such as co-ownership in the business. Um, and I was also doing a lot of selling. That kept me fairly busy. Great. Thank you. And uh, the second quickfire question then is, when you were my age, if you had been in my position looking for someone to interview for some life perspectives, for some life wisdom, who would you have wanted to interview? I think at that time, Hannah, I would have wanted to interview somebody called Temple Grandin. She is an autistic, bright uh, animal behaviorist uh, who spoke very, who was able to speak very graphically about her condition. And she really, I mean, I've heard her speak a couple of times. Um, she was full of sort of learning experiences that was relevant to, to, to me, even though she was talking from a very uh, precise position of somebody with, again, very severe autism, um, but able to speak uh, and uh, to a certain extent support herself. Yeah, that's really interesting. Thank you. Uh, she's someone whose work I've sort of lent on a certain amount already in my research and in the thesis I'm writing so that's interesting to hear that uh, you've been interested in what she's written too. So the third quickfire question then is what's something that most people don't know about you? Well I'm a very open person so I think most people know most things but um, my husband of 62 years died last September and that I think impacts how I'm looking at life just at the moment. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. I was sorry to hear that, that you'd lost him. And so recently as well, he sounded like a great support to you throughout all the years of you setting up your business and trying to look after Giles and so on. Sounds like a, someone who plodded on very faithfully. Well, I hope he was. I do hope he was faithful. I think he was. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I mean, sort of, um, yeah. I know you <laughs> Gave you a lot of civility, you know, when yes. you were extremely yes. busy. And yeah, yes. yeah. So you've mentioned a little bit already that your son was autistic, Giles, um, and some of you know what you 
your involvement with autism research is well known to some, perhaps not to everyone listening. So I wonder if you would tell me a bit about your experience of autism. My experience of autism started with my son Giles round about when he was two and a half, in that up to then uh, I had suspected or even knew in my heart uh, that he was learning disabled because he was slow to talk, slow to walk, everything. Um, But at two and a half, something dreadful happened in that he started to regress. He lost the little speech that he had and from a placid, contented baby turned over a matter of days into a a very unhappy, distraught, uh, hyperkinetic toddler who we eventually found out was autistic. Autism at that time was considered to be a very rare disorder, uh, one one person in 10,000 people. So we really didn't know anything about it and we made a lot of mistakes uh, it took us a long time to find anyone who could explain to us, who could, um, and, and I, so I started doing bits of research myself. Um, we've mentioned John Swinton's worth, work, uh, which I funded a long time ago. But that was for learning disability generally, because at that time, it wasn't possible to separate autism from learning disability. Uh, now we do so very, very particularly and make sure that we always separate the two because some autistic people have no learning disability. They are really bright as buttons with double PhDs and yet unable to get themselves a taxi or cross the road. Um, so it's, it's a very perplexing disorder. I think my Giles was very wild. I don't think I was terribly clever with him in the early days. He was so wild, for example, that, and I'm an agnostic, um, that I literally seriously considered getting somebody to make an exorcism on him. Not that I know anything about it, but it just seemed as if there was something in him that that was wrong. Um, So they were very unhappy times in the early days until we learned how to, the Great Ormond Street Hospital in London, helped me a great deal as to how to manage him. Um, and they made it clear that he wasn't going to get better. And he, he never spoke again. Yeah, thank you. It's really interesting that you say, you know, even as an agnostic, you found yourself looking for answers to this conundrum of autism that, you know, were almost spiritual in nature. And, and one thing I picked up reading your autobiography, you know, with my sort of theologian's hat on and with my uh, spiritual antennae sticking up was that you often describe Giles with what I would call religious language, things like a wholly innocent or ethereal, somewhat otherworldly. Um, And I noticed that at his humanist funeral that you describe in your book, you mentioned that you chose to read Ehrman's Desiderata And if you don't mind me just reading a little excerpt from it, Ehrman writes, You are a child of the universe, no less than the trees and the stars. You have a right to be here. And whether or not it is clear to you, no doubt the universe is unfolding as it should. Therefore, be at peace with God, whatever you conceive him to be, and whatever your labours and aspirations in the noisy confusion of life, 
keep peace in your soul. I wondered if you'd be willing just to share any reflections on why you chose that piece for Giles's funeral when he so sadly died and, you know, how you felt it connected you and him. Well, it was a humanist funeral because there was no question of Giles having any faith or any understanding. Um, it certainly mirrored my own spirituality, and I do think of myself as spiritual but not religious. Um, it seemed very appropriate for Giles, and I found a bit in, in the Desiderata also that was very appropriate for me. There's another bit, which of course I can't quote, um, something about being gentle with yourself. Mm -hmm. And that was very pertinent to me because I did have a breakdown with the stresses and strains of life. Um, and I have learned during that time, really, to be gentle with myself uh, and to look after my own um, physical, mental and spiritual development, whereas previously it was just all focused on Giles. And I really probably wasn't looking after my husband or me uh, in a appropriate way at all yeah thank you for that and um you mentioned also you know you, you speak of you're you're an agnostic like many and you chose a humanist funeral for Giles I also noticed that you mentioned that losing him caused you at that point to question what had been long-held atheist beliefs or you described them at that point as long-held atheist beliefs and setting you off on a spiritual journey so I wonder if you're willing to say a bit more about that and perhaps sort of where that journey has led you in recent years. Well, let me talk about my spiritual journey generally. Yeah. Um, I was born part Jewish and came to this country on the kinder transport as an unaccompanied child refugee. So I started off with that sort of in my genes. I was brought up by foster parents uh, basically nominally Church of England. You know, we went to church Easter and Christmas, that sort of Christianity. Um, but then they sent me to a Roman Catholic school to be educated, a convent. Um, and in my team, teens, um, I decided I was going to get baptised and so undertook some um, confirmation classes. Um, but... I think I finished them just about, um, but realised through that that I had no faith at all. I was just wanting to uh, belong to something that was stable and good, because I do talk about good and evil, um, stable and good, and uh, that would welcome um, a Jewish refugee. Um, I realised I was looking for that stability and I should still like to believe in life after death, um, but my search of this really led nowhere, um, and it's not for want of trying or lack of desire. I'm really grateful, though, that you're sort of so open about that because so many people are on journeys of this kind. So thank you for being willing to share a bit about that. I think as you get older, you start to face your own mortality with some realism, and that brings, brings it home. What sort of funeral do I want? Um, what sort of uh, life? What do, do I expect anything thereafter? And the answer is I don't. I wish I did, but I don't. That's so interesting. It is sort of contrast, I feel, in my own life. I've had long phases where I'd quite like not to believe in God. 
Really? I sometimes can't get away from it, even when I want to, you know, even if I run to the furthest ends of the earth, you know, I find my faith creeping back up on me. And I have no account for why that is. I have no no reason nor excuse. But you should realise that I really envy that faith. Isn't it funny? (laughs) Maybe we could swap for a day. Um, And um, I don't know, you know, it's led me into all sorts of interesting directions. And it's probably, you know, quietly fueling my study now and my interest in research into sort of spirituality and it's all its different forms. What do you take as your field of study? So my particular project at the moment um, is looking at how autistic people use uh, faith, spirituality, and particularly prayer for the sake of, you know, narrowing down to a thesis question to manage their mental health and specifically anxiety. Um, it's, it's gone in slightly unexpected direction, which is great in research, particularly in my kind of research, participatory action research, because it kind of reassures me in a sense that this project is being driven by the autistic community and not by sort of me as the researcher. So whereas I went into the project assuming that I would research how autistic people were using, you know, maybe meditation, mindfulness, all these sort of classic things that we associate with using prayer and spirituality to manage mental health, what came out very early on was that actually for autistic Christians in particular prayer is a great source of anxiety and that really shocked me. Um, There is a group that I I set up um, who are just um, I think they're about 10 um, very intellectual autistic people who like you have PhDs and studies and academic um, but still want to lead a complete they they view life in a completely different way and that's why it's important that they should drive your research not the researcher drive it yeah it's been really interesting to find what people do and don't or autistic people do and don't kind of um lean to in terms of faith and religious practices you know there, there are many autistic christians um and it, that's the group that are sort of pushing my research forward. Mm-hmm. And some really profound insights have come out because, especially from the, the older generation of autistic Christians, you know, they've practiced their faith for a long time as autistic people. And so they meet the obstacles, but they do find ways of overcoming them. Um, and I'm, yeah, I've been really touched by some of what they've shared in terms of how they engage with God and prayer and spirituality, how they've overcome problems that they've had um, in with prayer, making them feel anxious and so on. So there's been some really interesting outcomes. Let me tell you about a different sort of autistic person. I'll call him James. James lived with my son Giles for many years in one of the first charities that I set up. Um, and Basically, when I visited, and I visit, was there one or two days a week, um, I would be focused on Giles, but occasionally I would find myself caring for, for James. And um, I took him out for a walk one day, and all was well. Um, he was a difficult boy, with, with charm, actually, and, and with a musical feeling. He, he, music was important to him. Um, 
But then on the walk, he began to get a bit wild. And um, I thought, oh my gosh, what am I going to be doing here? I am quite a long way away from home. How do I calm him down? And we were walking past a church. And so I took him in the church because I knew he was had been accustomed to going to church. And he that's where he got his uh, love of music from. And we got it, went to the church. It was cool. It was lovely. We sat down and we both calmed down. Mm-hmm. And I always remember that as... Um, so unexpected as far as I was concerned. I was pleased with myself that I was able to manage the situation. I mean, some of the things that happen are, are akin to certainly spirituality, which is the term I always use. Um, you know, when they, an autistic person has little absences, possibly pretty mal epilepsy, but, you know, they're suddenly sort of not there for a few seconds. Um, it's very mystical um, in... Countries far away, uh, autistic people are considered to be holy because they are they're close to whatever God they believe in. Yeah. The way in which autism exhibits itself can be viewed as very negative, but it can also be viewed as thoughtful, insightful, long-term thinking, quality, non-material, um, things that we associate with religion and with other beliefs. Yeah, that's a brilliant point. And I, I'd noticed, perhaps you've noticed this too, the, the change in the language around re- autism research in recent decades to move away from pathologizing autism, not that there aren't difficulties and disabilities and learning difficulties that can come with it, but also, you know, Autistica, the charity that you yes. sort of largely founded, I believe, and certainly support financially to a great degree, um, are moving towards talking about helping autistic people to live full, fulfilled lives. Long, healthy and happy lives. Yes, yes. <clears throat> yes, I'm very, very much that's part of, I, I'm, I'm proud that I've made that sort of happen because I, I did found for Autistica. Nobody was doing any uh, research. And one of the things that disappointed me about Autistica, and they do know this, is that we started off doing pure research, an autism brain bank at Oxford University, things such as that. Um, And then they decided that the the scale of pure research was so long, and the charity is still quite small, that they needed to move to applied research or transactional research, as the Americans call it. Um, And that has made an enormous difference, actually. They're really making an impact. They're starting to look also at the um, overlap between epilepsy and autism. And it looks as if there are some secrets that will come out of those studies, uh, which are so obvious in a way. About 40% of people with autism are epileptic, and about 40% of people with epilepsy are autistic. So, you know, to to look at that Venn diagram and see what's what's going on there. So I find it very exciting, the work that they're doing now, and I'm really very proud of them, certainly the most strategic of my charities. Not my favourite, but it's the most strategic, the one I support. Are we allowed to ask what your favourite is? Are you allowed to have favourites publicly? (laughs) I I think everybody knows that I get an enormous joy uh, from uh, the school that I set up for people. It's called Prior's Court, um, and that is 
for people with autism and complex needs. I mean, they are very, very difficult. Um, there are about 90 pupils and 600 staff. I mean, so that gives the sort of ratio. Uh, it is, of course, boarding 52 weeks of the year. Um, and, but whenever I go there, I, I, I feel the positiveness that um, I'm conscious that I set up and I set up the original policies um, until I got somebody who knew much more than I did. Uh, but it is a joy to me to visit the, that school. I always come back with a big smile on my face. That's great to hear. And I'm glad you mentioned the school because I was particularly interested to ask you um, about the artwork in the building and in the grounds because you, you talk a lot and with great pride about the joy you find in choosing artwork for the place or, or you know, have found in choosing artwork for the place and how you've seen different members of the community there at Priors Court respond to the artwork. Um, so I wondered if you would talk a little bit about that. I mean, I'm surrounded myself with art and I find it gives me such pleasure that it seems obvious that in setting up a school, uh, not only is the food going to be good or the, 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 the accommodation is going to be good, but the, the actual artistic um, ambience is going to be good as well. So I chose um, work that was, and there was considered about 300 works of art, um, many in sets, so it, it's pervasive. It's not only above the mantelpiece, it, it's in the laundry, it, it's in the wash basin, the washrooms. And I chose it to be inspirational, to be hopeful, to be calm, to be serene, rather than, as sometimes I choose art, to be... Um, uh, challenging and stimulating. Um, so I was very much thinking of, of, a, of a different audience. I chose all sorts of different things to be practical, quite a lot of work in enamel, um, but also original paintings by well-known artists. And I do assure you that there is no more damage there than there would be if they were in your university. The, the different pupils react in different ways. One boy licked a painting. I mean, it was just covered with saliva. Uh, we really thought, well, sh should we move it out of his way? Or was he, in fact, getting something from this experience? It was a very abstract, plain John Miller painting. Uh, blue, um, it's, it's known that, or it's observed, that autistic people like the colour blue. So we use a lot of blue in the school anyway. Um, and we have made sure that some was of a different culture. It wasn't all just European, European art. But a lot of abstract, simply because um, autistic people find eyes in pictures disturbing. We just avoid those. Um, we had one picture that had some mild genitalia um, there, and, and a visitor sort of was very disapproving of that. So we took that one down. Um, so we, we try to, but it's, it's all over the school and it's different. It's so that the children can be there from five to 25. So they need to, as they move to different parts of the school, they need to have new stimuli. We have a lot of sculpture as well, sculpture wood, which is, has a lovely serene feeling to it. And again, apparently when staff, the children get wild, um, they go in a walk in the woods, it's cool, it's calm and it, it calms them down. Um, 
But I mean, I think this is what I mean by spiritual. Um, it's all the non-material things. Um, and nature is one of those. Uh, we also have some animals. Children learn to um, pet dogs. Uh, they learn to feed chickens. They learn to, I think, feed the goat. Um, and there is a donkey. I don't know what they do with the donkey. They certainly have Riding for the Disabled, which is a wonderful uh, charity that um, we take advantage of. Um, it's just a lovely place. And uh, I think you, I can go on talking about it for ages. That's absolutely super, though. And I mean, a lot of what you say resonates with what's come out of my research in terms of a couple of my participants talked about wild swimming yes. and the god of the great outdoors as as a spiritual experience for them uh, another who is more involved with liturgical traditions of christianity talked at length about her rosary beads which were very heavy and of a particular kind of stone that felt very smooth and cool in her hands and you know gave a very long description of the tactile nature of the rosary beads you know and it it sort of highlights how many autistic people experience sensory sensitivities, yes. you know, either hyper or hypo sensitivity that can be a little different from what non-autistic people experience. It, it can lead them to new places. Yeah, yeah. So I was, I'm glad to hear you talk a bit about that. And I love the photo of, of yourself on the website where you're standing next to one of the sculptors, sculptures that's outside Prior's Court School of the three figures, yeah. uh, which when I look at it, I sort of see a parent that's embracing, a parent that's yeah. kind of in a stress position maybe and a child reaching up. But I I wonder if everybody sees that when they look at it or if they see different things. That that piece is called The Joy of the Joy of the Family. Oh lovely. It also acts as a sort of slight centre. We had a terrible accident tragedy really um and two two staff members were were killed uh, in a road accident um and so the school went through some pupils were hurt as well but they recovered um and the school went through some very difficult times um and they all gathered around that particular because it was a big space that they could it was calm outside and they, they kept gathered there, I think, nearly every day to talk with what was happening, what was going to happen, um, how uh, the staff were there as well, of course. So it's very much a centre of the school. I'm glad you noticed that. I did, yeah. Oh, that's, that's interesting to hear. Yeah. We're kind of coming to the end of our um, time together. So, so my research is being one, it's one of several projects being run by the Centre for the Study of Autism and Theology at the University of Aberdeen, where Professor Swinton, who you're connected with, is one of the founding professors of that centre. And although at the moment the projects we're doing do focus primarily on the Christian faith, uh, which is just to do with the particular students like myself who are coming through at the moment, but the centre is actively developing links with other types of faith community with people of no particular faith, and for those who, like yourself, describe themselves as spiritual but not religious. So I wonder, you know, as a founder of autism research charities, um, whether you have any words of wisdom for the Centre of Autism and Theology as we sort of seek to shape our future projects and the work that we want to do. I can only share the experience that Autistica went through and the, um, the effect of moving from pure research 
to applied research so that one is really learning very distinctly from the sort of intuitive understanding that many people with autism have, that one can learn from that, not try to understand it. And of course, we do understand autism a bit better now. Um, it used to be considered a, 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 a product of poor parenting, which was not easy for the parents, of which I was one. Um, but now we do know that it's a brain disorder. And even knowing that makes it easier to accept the condition. And we have to accept it. Um, it is now impacting something like one in 80 children, um, not profoundly, not perhaps in a complex way, but it's very much part of the human human race and needs to be accepted as that. Mm-hmm. In that sense, you could even describe it as a brain difference, really. Yes. Um, I'm noticing that there's a move away, isn't there, from language such as condition or disorder, um, which is, and some of my participants have expressed this, it's it's good and it's bad because sometimes they feel like, well, they don't like that the experience of autism is being passed off as not something that's difficult. You know, like it, it takes away as much as it gives for some individuals. I haven't really seen that because I focus personally on the subset of the autism world, uh, like my son. Yeah. Because then I can apply what I learned over many years of being with him 24 hours a day. Yes. Yeah. And his needs were quite significant, weren't they, in terms of yes. keeping himself safe and yes. daily living and, yeah, super. Well, there's one more quick-fire question that um, Cumberland Lodge asked that we conclude our podcast with, which is, what advice do you have for people my age? Well, I can only look back as to how, how I was when I, when I was long, long ago your age. I, th- I think, Hedo, it's, it's to relax. It's going to be all right. Um, the next few years will make order out of the current chaos. Thank you. <laughs> what a great answer. That's really challenging. Um, the one thing I loved the most from your autobiography and from interviews that I've heard you do on Radio 4 and so on is that uh, you don't apologise for being a workaholic. And that no, for no. me is great comfort because <laughs> I love to collapse into bed totally exhausted at the end of the day and drag myself up the next morning to do it all again. But it's not considered best practice now. No, that's what I was going to say. I've had so many people try to pathologise that over the years. So it was really, for me, really encouraging to hear somebody say, yeah, well, it's who I am. Deal with yes. it, world. <laughs> but do you think maybe I should rein myself in? Would that be your advice looking back? Lead a happy life. Work is not just something you do when you'd rather be doing something else. That's a super answer. Thank you so much for that been a great pleasure thank you if you would like to keep up to date with life perspectives you can follow us on major podcasting platforms just search for cumberland lodge you can also keep up to date with all of the work of cumberland lodge on twitter facebook and on the read watch listen page of cumberlandlodge.ac.uk thank you once again to henna and dame stephanie for joining us and thank you for listening goodbye <laughs>